I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Raising the Allosaur. What is Raising the Allosaur? Possibly the biggest, weirdest dinosaur hoax of all time and a peek into the insane worlds of the young earth creationism and evangelical homeschooling movements. In 2003, a small, relatively unknown company that created and sold educational materials for religious-based homeschooling families released a feature-length documentary called Raising the Allosaur, the true story of a rare dinosaur and the homeschoolers who found it. It claimed not only to show a team of 30 homeschooled children digging up and excavating a rare, nearly complete Allosaurus skeleton, but that the skeleton proved that the Earth was not billions, but only 6,000 years old. And also, uh, Trump administration chief of staff Mark Meadows was in the movie and his daughter was the star of it. Act 1. The Kayfabe of the Soul. It's astonishing the lengths that people will go to to justify the beliefs that they've invested their entire lives into, and how they'll back up sideways into some of the most convoluted and nonsensical logic of all time, and regurgitate it to everyone around them with a straight face, simply because admitting they might have believed the wrong story or trusted the wrong person at some point, and wasted a lot of their time and money, would just simply be way too humiliating and inconvenient and in some cases would deconstruct and destroy the fragile patchwork, keeping them from having a full-on existential meltdown. But it's not surprising. It's human nature. None of us are above it. After all, I spent thousands of dollars on improv classes in my 20s because Amy Poehler told me that playing pretend on stage with my friends was a career. It's not the fact that we do it that's astonishing, but rather the places it takes us. Charlie Kaufman has nothing on a poor lost soul desperately trying to convince themselves that their entire life isn't a lie when it comes to creative writing. We tell ourselves and others stories all the time just to make it through the day. It's a powerful tool. We tell ourselves that if we buy fair trade coffee and chocolate, that we're somehow not contributing to the global pandemic of forced labor and child slavery. Or maybe you tell yourself that your loved one died instantly in a car crash so you can feel like they didn't suffer. Or maybe you tell yourself that you discovered a dinosaur skeleton with bones that prove it died only a couple thousand years ago, and that dinosaurs and humans all existed at the same time. And that the reason that dinosaurs are extinct is because they didn't make it onto Noah's Ark during the biblical flood and not because they were wiped out during a catastrophic event millions of years ago in order to justify the belief that the earth is actually only 6,000 years old. And that's exactly what an evangelical homeschool magnate named Doug Phillips did back in the early 2000s when he produced a documentary called Raising the Allosaur, the true story of a rare dinosaur and the homeschoolers who found it. That's a hell of a, that's a long clunky title there, Doug. I feel like that, that, let's see, let's see. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. That title has 17 words and a colon in it. It is a long and clunky title. And the reason we will get into, but long story short, it had to have all of those words in it because the whole point of the movie is to try and get famous for this concept of a bunch of homeschool children discovering a dinosaur. So, he was hedging his bets and just cramming all of that information into the title so that it could not be misconstrued. 
Yeah, you can really tell that that's what he's trying to do, too. Like, it's not like this title is, you know, homeschooling and how it's important. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not, uh, Allosaur Hunters, colon, the homeschooling years. Like, this, this is, this title is basically like three separate sentences. <laughs> yeah, it's a misinformation cursed sentence. Yeah, like the, you, you could basically make a whole crossword puzzle with this title alone. Yeah, which we will do. We'll do that. But before we can delve into that story, we need to explore and understand the historical context in which the movie came into existence. We must look back at the intertwining histories of the American evangelical homeschool movement, something called young earth creationism, and the bizarre way in which dinosaurs have become a major factor in both. Young Earth creationism is the belief that the Earth is only about 6,000 years old and no more than 10,000 years old. This belief comes largely from the stories that take place in the Genesis book of the Bible and hinges on a literal interpretation of the events that transpire within. Each of the six days it took God to create the Earth and heavens that are described in Genesis lasted a literal 24 hours. Creation took place in 4004 BC, and several thousand years ago, the world was flooded and only a handful of people and animals survived by building a gigantic ark. Most people believe that Christians believed this until advancements in technology helped us to discover that the earth is 4.6 billion years old. But contrary to popular belief, most Christians have not believed in young earth creationism theory or interpreted Genesis literally for much of history. It's a relatively new belief. In the second century AD, Saint Arrhenius of Lyons wrote a book called Against Heresies, in which he was responding to the Gnostic heretical belief that the God of the Old Testament was a different God from Jesus, and that he was evil. Their belief was based on Genesis 2, in which God tells Adam that he would die on the same day he ate fruit from the tree of knowledge. And since he clearly does not die on the same day he eats the fruit, God had lied to him. St. Arrhenius's argument was that the word day in Genesis did not mean a literal day, he referred to 2 Peter 3.8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So, in other words, what is meant by the word day in Genesis is a thousand years. And since Adam didn't live over a thousand years, he indeed died on the same day he ate the apple. Sick burn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like the God equivalent of being like, you know, we all die someday, bro. One day, you know, your number's up. You can't choose it, so you might as well live your life to the fullest. One day, bro, you eat that apple, you're going to die on that same day. But that's actually a thousand years. So you're going to live a long, happy life. So enjoy it and eat apples, I guess. Or don't eat the apples. One day, bro, you're going to go to get a little baby chalupa special from Taco Bell, and you're going to shit yourself to death. And that day is going to be like a thousand years. That's not a metaphor. That's literally what you're going to die from. I can see the future. One day, bro, your friend is going to force you to go to the Arby's drive-thru and you're going to be really polite, but then you're going to get food and it's going to taste like hot garbage in your mouth and then you're going to get shamed on the internet by a bunch of motherfuckers who are like, no, Arby's is really good. And you're just like, I've eaten it. It's terrible. And then after several weeks of denying the existence of a certain uh, lovable person with an eye patch. He's going to show up and prove to you that he's real. But then you're going to die because that's what this bit is. You're just going to die. Yep. He still thought the earth was only about 12,000 years old. But the point is that it was fairly popular among Christians to believe in a non-literal interpretation of the Bible. 
It wasn't a given to every Christian during these times that Earth was literally created in six days, and that somebody had literally built a giant boat and put two animals from each species on it. This was called the gap interpretation of Genesis, and it was a popular theory during this time period. William of Conscious argued for a non-literal interpretation of the Bible in the Middle Ages. He even suggested that maybe the Bible imagery about God creating Adam by breathing life into dust was also figurative, and that it represented the idea that man was created through a natural process put into motion on earth by God. Basically, he was making a case for the existence of evolution before the concept of evolution existed, except that God was the one that kickstarted it. The idea is that God created light and matter, and then just allowed the process of evolution to slowly shape the universe. I love the idea of God going into Facebook groups and spamming his Kickstarter link for creating humanity. Just, hey guys, come on, I'm just really trying to, just trying to raise like, you know, 1.41 quadrillion dollars to just, you know, kickstart this whole person thing. Like, I've just really, you know, I've been really struggling and, you know, no, none of these people will back me in the, in the traditional, uh, people industry. So I'm just going outside the system. I'm a maverick. I'm doing it on my own. I'm making my own people. It's going to be great. Back now, lots of rewards. Yeah, big people, you know, they were they were all interested in me whenever I was cranking out those generic ideas. As long as I was wanting to create life forms that had noses that stretched down to the floor and dragged along and could, you know, smell the ground as they walked. And that was the way that they navigated. And they had no eyes on their face and their brains were exposed and they would just like fall out of their heads and go down and then bounce up like a yo-yo and go back into their head. And as they did that, they scooped up particles from the air and that's how they ate. As long as I was pitching those ideas, they were giving me all the money. But the moment that I was like, hey, what about if there was a person that like had like a regular like nose that didn't drag on the ground? And what if like there was a skull that was covering the, the brain and they ate like cows and they threw like a hole in their face and they laughed me right out of the studio. So now I want to work with you to bring this vision to life. You know, I remember when I was in the office and I was pitching, what if we made like like monkeys, but like without the fur? And everyone was like, that'll never work. Monkeys, you got to have the monkeys with the fur or else they're weird looking. And I was like, yeah, but have you ever put monkeys in like like costumes, you know, like, isn't it cute when you put a chimpanzee in like a little like tuxedo? Like, imagine if that was just them all the time. And then everyone in the room, they just started laughing at me. And I was like, you know what? I'm taking it to Kickstarter and I'm going to name these new monkeys people. What if you took monkeys and took all the fur off of them and put them into cute little costumes and then they were just like sad all the time? Yeah. Have you ever noticed that like monkeys really like to be around each other and they like they're always like touching and like rubbing and like smooching and like, you know, sometimes fucking, you know, you know how they're always doing that? Well, what if we gave them enough consciousness to be able to be self-conscious, to be aware of how hideous and repulsive they are, which would then strip them of their ability to interact freely and with abandon and enjoy living in the moment? What if we just entrapped monkeys in a cage of their own thoughts? Wouldn't that be awesome? They laugh me right out of there. Smash that fucking back button, bro. Soon as you do, you'll see all kinds of awesome reward tiers, like stickers, free PDFs, some NFTs and some other stuff. <laughs> NFTs existed before humans. <laughs> this idea of a hybrid between evolution and creationism is not uncommon. In fact, Stephen Hawking suggests that both things might be true, 
that God created the process of evolution in his book, A Brief History of Time. However, there were Christian scholars and thinkers during this time that believed in young earth theory. Isaac Newton was one of them. But this was never official doctrine. In fact, many religious thinkers at the time took the Genesis quote, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. To mean that there was a time after the earth had been created when there was complete universal chaos and that this time of chaos potentially lasted millions of years until God finally created man in the famous six days. You know what this is? This is like, this is like when motherfuckers are like really obsessed with continuity in comics and they're like, we just really need to know where Hal Jordan was between the months of June and September of 1991. Where was he? Was he on Oa? Because there's one issue where we see him not on Oa. It's just like, it, it, it's such a reductive, lit- I mean, I know I know that this is obviously even more reductive than comic book nerds, but it just, it makes me feel like the Bible is just like crisis on infinite earths for dudes from the middle ages. I mean, that's exactly what it is. And we've talked about this on the show before, the idea that everything is fandom and the radicalization into fascist beliefs or toxic capitalism or conspiracy theories or religion is all just fandom. And the reason why we've all just gone out of our minds is because the internet has just augmented this fandom culture that we naturally have. We've talked about it before and it's no different here. And we're going to get into this upcoming, but basically that's exactly right. The kind of the idea here is that there became this obsession with how young the earth was to justify the stories of Genesis, basically, where this whole movement sprung up around science denialism specifically because they were protective of the stories of Genesis. When in reality, back in the day, Christians didn't give a fuck about that. They didn't care about justifying the age of the earth. And so this obsession with it is all for nothing. It's it's a non-issue kind of. I think that religion would continue existing and be fine if people didn't figure out where Hal Jordan was from X year to X year. And yet they've become obsessed with that very detail, despite the fact that it doesn't matter at all and nobody cares. This was called the chaos restitution interpretation of Genesis, and it was actually the dominant view of the Bible during the 18th century. As geology developed and scientists started to discover the fact that the Earth was billions of years old, theologians actually embraced these findings and fully supported the geological studies. The reason being that at this time in the 18th century, Europe was experiencing something called the Age of Enlightenment, a period defined by an increased focus on logic, reason, and tolerance. During this time, a new subsect of religion called Enlightenment Deism popped up, and these Enlightenment Deists sought to question the beliefs and values of traditional Christianity, apply Enlightenment values to theology, and argued various things, such as that a loving God would allow anybody into heaven as long as they were good people, and that it didn't matter if they went to Sunday Mass or practiced communion or were even Christian. They also argued that many of the actions attributed to God in the Bible were cruel, and that a truly loving God would not commit these acts, and therefore these stories in the Bible were either metaphors or simply lies. Some of the more famous Enlightenment deists of this time were Ben Franklin, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson. Just a bunch of dudes in wigs. Dudes in wigs who claim to be enlightened, yet still were trapped by the morality of their times, like slavery. But more importantly to the story, Enlightenment deists believed that the earth and heavens were essentially ageless and had always existed throughout eternity. 
They had a more spiritual connection with theology rather than a religious one and didn't believe that the world had been literally created at the hands of God. Traditional theologians opposed nearly every aspect of Enlightenment deism and fully embraced the geological research of the time because it was physical, concrete evidence, something that people used to kind of care about, that the Earth was finite, that it had been created at some point. This next part is the most ironic, and I'm going to return to a phrase used on this show many times during the QAnon series, context laundering. One of the largest Enlightenment deist philosophers of the time, Nicholas Rupka, wrote a lot of arguments about his beliefs in an eternal Earth, the steady-state model of the Earth, that were directly opposed by traditional Christianity because they defied biblical values. And yet, much like the people today who cherry-pick that one specific speech from Martin Luther King Jr. about having a dream in order to condemn violent protests and bad faith, leaving out the fact that MLK Jr. openly and repeatedly spoke about supporting violent protests if they were necessary, Many modern young earth creationists actually use out-of-context quotes and arguments by Nicholas Rupka, the man who believed that the universe is ageless and never had a beginning, in order to try and attack geology and claim that the earth is no more than 6,000 years old. That would be like blasting I Believe I Can Fly by R. Kelly at an anti-child trafficking protest, which I'm sure has actually happened at a QAnon rally at some point. That also just sounds like something that like Eric Andre would do. Like, that just sounds like an Eric Andre bit. Like, I can just see him screaming, I can fly. Oh, I, I thought you were talking. I thought you were saying that quoting Nicholas Rubka in order to, like, <laughs> justify a 6,000-year-old Earth was something that Eric Andre would do. I mean, honestly, that too. <laughs> Both. But yeah, 100%. That's like, it wouldn't fly now because, like, it just wouldn't fly. But, like... Six years ago, if like six years ago, R. Kelly had already been outed as a child molester. He went to court for peeing on that girl. Oh, well, then oh, the, you're, I, I forgot about the peeing thing. So. So, yeah. So it works. It, it works even more. So during that time, whenever R. Kelly was in the news and in controversy because of the peeing thing and whenever Dave Chappelle did the sketch about him and all that stuff. At that time, if Eric Andre was around then, he 100% would do that. The main summary being that prior to the more advanced geological studies of the 18th century, when nothing was known about the age of the Earth, even then a large percentage of Christians were fairly open to the possibility that the Earth was very old. And as these scientific discoveries started to be made, the primary tactic of Christians for squaring their beliefs with this new information, rather than science denialism, was to try and wildly reinterpret the words of the Bible in a very roundabout way to retrofit them to what science was finding. Oh, uh, well, uh, when they said six days, what they actually meant was that each day was like five million years? So basically six days was like a billion years? See? Uh, the Bible was right. It totally lines up with what the scientists discovered. How amazing is that? The Bible predicted everything. What's that? Oh, also we now think that humans slowly evolve from a more primitive race of primates similar to chimpanzees? Oh, oh, well, yeah, when the Bible said that, the universe entered a period of chaos. Like, remember that arcade fighting game called Primal Rage where all the characters were prehistoric creatures and there was that silver gorilla ape guy named Chaos? See? It all checks out. Bible was right. It wasn't actually until the late 20th century that young Earth creationism, as we know it today, that the Earth is 6,000 years old and it was created in six literal days, and the whole story about how Adam and Eve were created out of dust by God was literally true, and God actually did create the human race fully formed out of thin air, became a popular aspect of religion. In fact, prior to the 1920s, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution was not only embraced by many traditional Christian thinkers, but many openly endorsed it and taught it to their students and congregations and 
even developed their own offshoot theories that combined evolution with creationism. The theory of evolution was promoted heavily by Christian fundamentalists in the American South, and many religious colleges in the South had evolution as part of their curriculum. Why? Because at the time, the religious philosophers and Christian geologists and paleontologists recognized the new scientific findings about the age of the Earth and the existence of human evolution as undeniable, irrefutable fact with tons of concrete evidence. And rather than attempt to debate them and lose all credibility for traditional biblical belief, they realized that they needed to reconcile their beliefs with these findings so that people would say, oh, okay, that makes sense, rather than, wait a minute, if this is true, then how does that make sense? Basically, they wanted people to keep believing in religion, but they respected some base level concept of truth and facts. And the idea of just full on denying something was true, even with the cold hard evidence right in front of their face, wasn't even remotely in their lexicon. And don't get me wrong, there was opposition to evolution, but it was only ever just from fringe elements that weren't centralized enough to actually become a mainstream viewpoint. It wasn't until the 1920s that, for whatever reason, a strong, organized resistance to the Darwinian theory of evolution started cropping up in the United States. But even then, these Christians did not hold strong beliefs about the age of the Earth. It wasn't until the 1960s that the idea of a 6,000-year-old Earth started to be incorporated into the growing opposition to Darwinism by American religious fundamentalists. From 1900 to 1950, there was only one religious group that had young Earth creationism as a cornerstone of their beliefs, the Seventh-day Adventists. They were also a controversial movement within theology and largely viewed as heretical because their founder, Helen G. White, claimed to have visions given to her directly by God that were on par with the direct word of God. She claimed to have been taken back to the time of Genesis in her visions and shown that the earth was literally created in six days. One of the most high-profile Adventists of the time, George McCready Price, despite not being an actual geologist, wrote hundreds of papers on geology. He argued using Adventist beliefs and his own brand of pseudo-geology that the layers of rock in the earth that scientists were using to determine the age of the planet had actually been created by the ocean waves during the biblical flood that covered the earth during the story of Noah. Many of the arguments used by young earth creationists can be traced back to one of his papers instead of anything from any actual geologist. One of the main arguments used by young earth creationists is the rock layer circular reasoning argument. Basically, the argument is that the geological time scale that determines the age of the Earth is completely bogus because geologists determine how old each layer of rock is by the types of fossils that are contained in it, but they determine the age of fossils by which layer of rocks they're in, and therefore they are just making everything up and don't actually know the real age of the Earth. Here is a young Earth creationist explaining the circular reasoning argument using a definitely real story that totally actually happened. Many years ago, I was speaking in Union Center, South Dakota. Union Center is right there. It's not even on the map. And South Dakota puts everything they can find on the map just to fill in the white places. There were 40 people in the whole town. 38 of them came to church. I don't know where the other two were. Probably out pulling a calf, I reckon. But we had a great time. It was a wonderful little church out there in the country. The preacher said, hey, Brother Holford, let's go down to Rapid City. They've got a museum with dinosaurs. I said, man, I like dinosaurs. Let's go. So we all drove down to Rapid City. We walked in the door, and this old fellow met us at the door, and he said, folks, I'm a guide here. Would you like me to give you a tour? We said, that would be great, sir. The first place we stopped on this tour was the geologic time scale. They've got it behind glass, all lit up. It's holy. Don't touch it. Okay. <laughs> We're standing there, and the guide said, now, folks, this layer of rock you're looking at right here is about 70 million years old. And it's so cool, because they always get that sanctimonious tone in their voice, you know. 70 million 
years old. Oh. <laughs> My daughter raised her hand. She said, uh, sir, how do you know that layer is 70 million years old? He said, that's a good question, honey. He said, we tell how old these layers are by what kinds of fossils are found in them. They're called index fossils. She said, okay. We walked around the other side. We're standing over here. And the guide said, now, folks, these bones you're looking at are about 100 million years old. <laughs> My daughter raised her hand again. She said, uh, sir, how do you know the age of those fossils? He said, well, honey, we tell the age of the fossils by which layer they come from. She said, uh, sir, when we were standing over there, you told me you knew the age of the layers by the bones, and now you're telling me you know the age of the bones by the layers. She said, isn't that circular reasoning? I thought, wow, a chip off the old block. <laughs> that guy had the strangest look on his face. It was almost as if he were thinking. He looked at my daughter. He looked at me. I wasn't about to help him. <laughs> I thought, man, this is going to be good. I got to hear this. He looked back at my daughter. He said, man, you're right. That is circular reasoning. He said, I never thought of that before. That poor fellow drove 50 miles one way that night to hear me speak in Union Center, South Dakota. The crowd swelled to 39. <laughs> we set up a chair in the aisle. Afterwards, he talked to me for almost, almost an hour. He said, Hovind, is everything I believe about geology wrong? I teach this stuff at the college. I said, oh, no, man, I like geology. Are you kidding? You've learned the names of all the minerals. Huh. That's a good trick, folks. There are 1,200 minerals. Some have names about this big. I said, you've learned the hardness test, the Rockwell test, the scratch test. I said, no, sir, I like geology. I like rocks and minerals. I have a huge fossil collection, a big mineral collection. I like, I like minerals. I said, but the part about them being different ages is all baloney. But he doesn't dare quit teaching it because he'll lose his job. See, people who don't support the evolution theory lose their job in public schools. That's the way it works. We cover more on that on video number seven. It's a carefully protected state religion. And that And that story definitely happened. You know, you know what this guy looks like? Kent Hovind. Kent Hovind. Kent Hovind looks like Mr. Rogers crossed with an ice cream salesman. Kent Hovind looks like if you unbuttoned the two buttons of that like weird brown kind of too tight suit jacket he's wearing, his skin would just fall off to reveal the reptilian underneath. Kent Hovind looks like the type of guy who goes home at night and his entire apartment is just covered with photos of Marissa Tomei's feet. Kent Hovind looks like he has a used car lot, but for some bizarre reason, when he sells you a car, it's just full of salami, and he won't explain to you why. Kent Hovind looks like the type of guy who worked in middle management at Hasbro in the 80s and wanted nothing more than to work in middle management at Mattel in the 80s. <laughs> but yeah, this story definitely happened. His daughter definitely had that conversation with the museum worker. She definitely used the phrase circular logic. Um, and uh, that museum worker definitely at this point in his life was that easily like swayed to change his entire worldview 
based on what like one seven-year-old child said to him during a museum tour. And, you know, because adults do that. They definitely listen to what children say. And when children make good points, they definitely immediately back down and in a well-reasoned and even-toned voice go, you know, that's a pretty good point. They don't just get irrationally angry and go, shut the fuck up. I know that's what I do. This argument was originated by McCready Price, and it's kind of compelling. Certainly enough to still be used by young earth creationists to wow auditoriums full of people. The only issue is that it's not true. The age of rock layers is not determined by the fossils in them. At least it wasn't in the beginning. It's determined by radiometric dating, examining the proportion of two different types of radioactive isotopes in the rock. Because these isotopes break down in a predictable way, scientists can determine the age of a rock by observing how far they have been broken down in it using a thermal ionization mass spectrometer. Determining the age of a rock by the fossils inside of it is essentially a type of scientific shorthand for quickly and easily figuring out the rock's age without doing all that testing, because we can reasonably assume that the estimation is correct based on what we know about the age of the fossils. Kind of like how you can reasonably assume it's Saturday even without looking at a calendar because Saturday Night Live is on TV. Seeing SNL on TV is not the way that we determine which day was Saturday, but we can use it as a fairly accurate indication. I don't know. Every time I see Pete Davidson in any context, I'm just like, oh, it's Saturday. And if we really want to be sure, we can just look at a fucking calendar. Just like how geologists can always do radiometric dating to determine the true age of a rock if they want to be sure. In that video, young earth creationist Kent Hovind uses very deceptive rhetoric by saying that geologists do not in fact use radiometric dating to determine the age of rock layers, and that if you ask any geologist, they will tell you that they don't. This leaves out the major context that geologists by and large don't use radiometric dating to determine the age of rock layers because they've built a system for being able to accurately and reasonably assume a rock's age based on its fossils, and so there is no need to do radiometric dating every single time but that their entire system for using fossils to determine the age of rock layers is built off of a foundation of work where they use radiometric dating to determine the age of rock layers, studied which fossils were in the rock layers, labeled the age of those fossils based on the age of the rock, and turned those fossils into an easy indicator of the age of the rock layers. And this is where things inevitably get racist. Price held certain beliefs in his writings about the Tower of Babel story from Genesis 11 that basically said that, after the Tower of Babel fell and God created different languages for different tribes of people to speak, there was a quote-unquote degradation, his words not mine, of certain tribes that produced darker colored skin. This is how he justifies the findings of fossils and evidence of ancient hominids like Neanderthals. They weren't an ancient precursor to modern Homo sapiens, they were people just like us, but people that had quote degraded to the maximum amount. In Price's scale, all of the types of primates that have ever existed on Earth all existed at the same time, and they ranged from the least degraded, white people, to the most degraded, with the darkest skin and the most ape-like features. Just truly ghoulish stuff. Using racist tropes and black and brown people as props in a weird fan theory to explain cavemen. So, you know, this is the guy whose writings most of modern young Earth creationism is based on. And once again, I'm just saying, I'm going to say, I'm so glad that my name is Spice. Like anybody who's a, anybody who would be associated with this. Even tangentially. Anybody whose name is Price has got to be a piece of shit because this guy is just such a piece of shit that he like retroactively pulls in every other person with the name Price and inherently just makes them a giant racist piece of shit. Yeah, which is why I'm so glad that my name is Spice. Fuck this guy. Fuck. That's all I have to say about this. Fuck this guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
It, it was inevitable. It was it was inevitable. Like we knew we was we knew it was getting there somewhere. We knew it was coming. Thankfully, Price had few followers throughout the years, and his writings were not popular. That is until the 1950s. Because of course, in 1954, a creationist theologist named Bernard Ram wrote a book wildly exaggerating how influential Price's work had been during his lifetime, called the Christian View of Science and Scripture. However, Ram's intention with the book was actually to get Christians to reject young earth creationism and embrace modern, more progressive theological beliefs. He was criticizing Price's work as being the outdated views of mainstream traditional Christianity, even though it wasn't, but it had the opposite effect. Another writer, John Whitcomb Jr., wrote a dissertation response to Ram's book defending Price's writings. Whitcomb couldn't get his dissertation published as a book because he had no scientific credentials. And so he attempted to find a scientist who would co-author the book with him. He reached out to hundreds of geologists, all who rejected his manuscript. He finally met Henry Morris, somebody who wasn't a geologist at all, but who had a PhD in hydraulic engineering. He agreed to co-author the book. And this is kind of similar to the modern thing where there will be, this doctor says that vaccines will kill you. And then the doctor's a chiropractor. However, they decided that they needed to distance themselves from Price because his writings had already been rejected by both the scientific and theological community. So they rewrote the book to completely remove any reference to Price and instead just took several of his fan theories and repackaged them as new original theories they came up with. They could never find a geologist with a PhD to review and endorse the book, but they published the Genesis Flood in 1968 anyway. The scientific community did not embrace the book, but instead of engaging in a direct debate with science, attempting to reconcile their theories with existing scientific findings, or just simply giving up on their theories after being rejected by scientists like all theologists had done in the past, they simply just ignored the scientists and marketed the book to the general public who didn't know any better. The book sold 10,000 copies in its first decade of publication and 200,000 copies over the next 25 years. Morris and Whitcomb became massive celebrities amongst the general Christian public. So basically, seemingly for the first time ever in history, these two guys realized, what if we just like didn't care if scientists said this was right? And we just like told people it was anyway. Yeah, I mean, really what it is, is it's two guys who kind of marched to the beat of their own drum, who just decided one day, what if we didn't really buy into this whole like listening to what other people's conception of what our thing should be? And what if we just did our own thing? And sometimes it could adhere to what other people expect. And sometimes it could be something wildly different and unique and special. And those two guys made some very interesting points and created something that never would exist otherwise yeah i mean in 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 many senses they were like extreme in like a 90s sense and they were like they were like mavericks in a in a like mid 2010s um uh john mccain sense and they were probably really good looking in a rudy giuliani kind of way uh 911 Rudy Giuliani or um Four Seasons Landscaping Company Rudy Giuliani. Well, there's two of them, so you can probably have a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. One of each. One of them just looked like a young Rudy, Rudy Giuliani and one of them looked like the old fucking decrepit fucking leaking oil from his head Rudy Giuliani. I mean, one man's oil is another man's lube. <laughs> Ha 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 
<laughs> it was it was funny it was funny just what you said but it was also even funnier because you did not know you were going to say that until you got to the word. I mean, for the sake of self-defense, I'm going to agree with you. Because I definitely don't have a sexual compunction towards 70-year-old men who are married to their cousins and leak black ink out of their temples. I definitely don't. 100% I'm not into that. I'm, I'm not kink shaming. No, no kink shaming over here. If you were to search my Pornhub history right now, it would just be... Daddy Squidward, uh, forehead leaks a lot. Uh, two girls, one Rudy. It's a, it's a whole, it's a whole scene, man. Rudy Giuliani, more like Rudy Jula. Come on, me, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Which also just sounds like a regular Italian name. <laughs> you fucking racist! <laughs> what? <laughs> They formed the Creation Research Society, dedicated to championing the idea of young Earth creationism through science. They could never get any PhD geologists to join the organization, but it didn't matter. They had manufactured an entire arm of the scientific community dedicated to championing young Earth theory with a huge amount of public support who had zero clue that they had no idea what they were talking about and no actual knowledge of geology. Morris also helped to found another similar foundation called the Institute of Creation Research, which still exists to this day. These two men and these two organizations basically single-handedly canonized young earth creationism into mainstream Christianity, where it had never existed before, and created an entire cottage industry of scientists of varying levels of legitimacy dedicated to using geological research to justify a young earth. By the 1990s, most people just believed that Young Earth Theory had always been the default position of Christians. So Young Earth creationists had successfully mainstreamed their beliefs and stripped Christianity of its historical rejection of them. But there's just one problem. What about all of those dinosaur bones? They'd have to figure out something to do about those. And that's when they had to flex those creative writing muscles. Two, I was homeschooled, and I can attest that shit is weird. Dinosaurs wearing saddles. You can picture it vividly in your mind if you grew up in the late 80s and early 90s. You're picturing that distinct Deke Entertainment animation style. Burly men in tactical outfits or fur loincloths, riding atop their cybernetic dinosaur steeds as laser blasts fire off around them. But no, they're not something from a late 80s, early 90s toy line tie-in Saturday morning cartoon. They're on display at the Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. The idea of rideable dinos is part of a massive effort over the last six decades by young Earth creationists to insist that dinosaurs are not creatures from millions or billions of years ago, but rather just another flavor of animal that existed alongside lions, tigers, and men a couple thousand years ago, and that they just simply didn't make it onto Noah's Ark. Have you ever seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Remember that scene where Pee-wee stops at that diner meets the waitress Simone and they watch the sunrise from inside of a giant T-Rex statue next to a giant brontosaurus by the diner. Those dinosaur statues are real. They're called the Cabazon dinosaurs and they are located off the freeway in Cabazon, California, just west of Palm Springs next to a real diner and also like uh, Taco Bell, I think. And you can go see them and actually go inside of them and they're pretty cool. The brontosaurus, or I guess brachiosaurus now, even has a little gift shop inside of it and there's a dinosaur museum behind the T-Rex 
But if you go into the gift shop, you might notice something odd. On the walls, you'll find framed infographics explaining how dinosaurs actually lived thousands of years ago, rather than millions. If you pay to go through the Dino Museum, you'll be surprised to discover that it's dedicated to justifying young Earth theory through a bunch of convoluted ideas about dinosaur bones. Even people who know about the fact that the Pee Wee Herman dinosaurs are real probably don't know this. The Cabazon dinosaurs were designed by Claude Bell, a theme park attraction designer for Knott's Berry Farm, in 1964 as a run-of-the-mill roadside tourist trap in order to attract customers to his restaurant, Wheel Inn. Their names are Denny the Dinosaur and Mr. Rex. Denny was constructed first from 1964 until 1975. Construction on Mr. Rex began a few short years later after Denny and was completed in 1986. There were plans to build a giant woolly mammoth and to install lights in Denny's head and mouth so her eyes would glow and she'd breathe fire at night, but Bell died in 1988 at the age of 91 before those plans could be completed. In the mid-90s, Bell's family sold the dinosaurs and the property to the city of Cabazon. In order to capitalize off of the renewed popularity of the dinosaurs from Peebee's Big Adventure, the city purchased additional land around the dinosaurs and planned to expand the area into a roadside children's science exhibit with restaurants, a museum, and a motel. However, at some point in the mid-2000s, Gary Cantor, a Orange County developer, began working with Pastor Robert Darwin Childs to transform the Cabazon dinosaur into a weird creationist thirst trap. They filled the gift shop inside of Denny with religious propaganda and converted the museum into an ode to the fact that Earth was only 6,000 years old, all to trick unsuspecting families stopping to check out the cool peewee dinosaurs into getting an earful about young Earth creationism. But they also put a big Santa suit on T-Rex during the holidays, so that's neat. I got conflicting information online, some of which seemed to suggest that the creationist had actually sold the dinosaurs to somebody else who was not pushing a creationist message, but I've been there as recently as late November 2021, and the creationist stuff is definitely still there. Have you ever been to the Cabazon dinosaurs? No, but I'm incredibly jealous now, knowing that you have. I've been there tons of times. I want to go there very badly. Yeah, we, 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 just, we just went there um, a couple months ago. And we went there on a road trip sometime middle of last year. And we went there again sometime in 2020. And yeah, I've been there. I've been there like four or five times. And they're really cool. This this whole this whole episode is just a big swerve. It's going to end with you being like, and that's why the young earth creation. All of this is true. <laughs> no, it's it's I mean, it's it's definitely weird. Uh, it The the first time I I went there, I, we went inside of the gift shop and they're they're cool. Like they look cool on the outside and it's cool to go inside. Um, and they all it not only are the dinosaurs cool, but the whole thing just kind of has this like sort of 60s vibe to it. Like everything just looks the same as it did in the 60s. Um, but then we noticed that there was just like these weird posters on the wall that were just talking about like weird religious stuff. And I was like, what what is this? What the hell is going on? And it was just it just had this strange vibe. And then after the fact. This was back in like 2015 or something. Um, I looked it up and I found a Vice article talking about how it had been bought by a creationist family who turned it into this weird trap. I'm into it, man. I, I want to go. I don't obviously don't agree with that, but it's still kind it, it it makes it more interesting. The whole vibe of it is just this weird vibe of all oh, these dinosaurs. And then also it has this weird ulterior motive. It actually kind of makes it more appealing. How many more times can I say I would like to go there? <laughs> I think it's like, what is it, like an hour and a half away from here? Sold. Let's go there and just get radicalized. Look at my eyes right now. Do they have the uh, wild abandon of someone who's a completely let loose their preconceived notions of what the Earth's timeline should be 
and I'm ready to accept a completely new arbitrary bullshit timeline of how old the earth is because I'm ready, baby. The the pump is prime. Your your eyes do actually. It's odd because you, you put it perfectly into words, but that is exactly what your eyes look like. All this to say that, oddly enough, dinosaurs became a huge aspect of the young earth creationist rhetoric. Why? Throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and all the way to today, there's been a boom in creationist geologists and paleontologists and organizations dedicated to creationist science. Young Earth creationists successfully indoctrinated several generations of people into believing that young earth creationism was synonymous with Christianity, but the one thing they couldn't do was explain away all those dinosaurs we kept digging up. And the more time goes on, the more dinosaurs are dug up. The only recourse young earth creationists had was to go into the field of paleontology and try to land grab as many dinosaur digs as possible before the secular scientists could get their hands on them. Every time a new dinosaur dig is discovered, it's essentially a race to see whether that specific set of fossils will be used to further the scientific expression of an ancient earth and evolution or a creationist expression of a young earth and intelligent design. The creationist scientist's belief is that every living creature, including dinosaurs and man, coexisted several thousand years ago on the megacontinent, aka Pangaea, but that the biblical flood from the story of Noah's Ark broke apart Pangaea into the multiple continents we have today, and that most of the dinosaurs and other animals that no longer exist went extinct because they didn't make it onto the Ark, except for a handful of species of dinosaurs that actually did make it onto the Ark and continued living on Earth for hundreds of years afterward until finally going extinct for natural reasons. If that sounds weird and convoluted, it's because it is, but also because it's all part of a very calculated sequence of theories that help to justify a young Earth. Possibly the oddest thing about young Earth creationists is that many of them believe that dragons were real. There's a whole exhibit at the Creation Museum about how dragons actually existed. They also believe that the Loch Ness Monster is real. So why would these creationists believe in mythological creatures? Because it conveniently plays into this bizarre kayfabe tapestry they've concocted to prove that the Earth is only 6,000 years old. See, the reason why dragons are depicted in myths, legends, and art from ancient cultures and civilizations across the world is because they were drawing off of real-life creatures that existed during their time. Dragons were actually dinosaurs, the ones that made it onto Noah's Ark. And if dragons, aka dinosaurs, existed alongside man thousands of years into our recorded history, that means they couldn't have existed millions of years ago and that evolution isn't real. Oh, and they think that Loch Ness Monster is actually a dinosaur that survived extinction. I mean, you think I'm going to say no? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I kind of love it. I mean, I'm so into that. I love the idea of Nessie anyway. I just want that to exist because it's cool to me, even though I know that it's not. But there's just something so romantic and forlorn about the idea of a soul giant lizard dinosaur guy or girl living in this lake by themselves doomed to be the last of their kind it's such such a tragic romantic tale i love it i love the loch ness monster so much yeah and you can just imagine the story behind it where it's like in the middle ages the medieval times where there was knights battling for the for the fate of kingdoms and then there was also just these giant dragon creatures roaming the earth that were actually dinosaurs. And, you know, much like Dragonheart, the knights would like befriend the dinosaurs and they would become their their wards or their or their uh, familiars. Well, that's more of a witch thing, but they would have these dinosaur companions. And there was this one dinosaur who had this knight companion and they were, you know, they were the best of friends and they battled many other dinosaurs and knights and one day the knight died of old age and the dinosaur was alone. Nessie was alone 
And then all of the other dinosaurs died out and they just kept living. And they've just lived the rest of their life just remembering their friend, the knight, and mourning his his death for all of eternity. So two things for that. One, have you watched Braveheart recently? Uh, the last time I watched Braveheart was like, it was not like recently, recently, but it also wasn't back when it came out in the 90s. It was maybe some time in like the 2000s or early 2010s or something like that. So I tried to watch it last year because I was like, oh, Braveheart. Cool. Yeah. That movie sucks. <laughs> it's like weirdly slapstick. And like, I'm cool with slapstick comedy if it's good. But that movie is so aimed at five-year-olds and that's probably how old i was when i first watched it so as an adult it is like woof this does not hold up two also before you say two also i'm just re just for the audience i'm just retroactively realized that i think we're both saying braveheart oh dragonheart 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 for the listener right now that's just like it's fucking dragonheart like i i realized it i caught it we're good. Yeah, th- we're, we're talking about the movies about dragons, not the movies about the anti-Semite who beat the shit out of his wife and knocked out her teeth and left racial epithet slurs on her answering machine. Fuck you, Mel Gibson. That's what Braveheart was about? Yeah. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Some young Earth creationists skip the convoluted rationalizations altogether and just claim that dinosaur bones were planted in the ground by satan to trick us which i also kind of love that idea and that's just also what a what a cocky little shit satan is he's like i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna make up a little fake monster and i'm gonna put its bones in the ground like that's like <laughs> what, what a fucking weird idea <laughs> just imagine satan doing that <laughs> But what about the fossils? What do they say about the fossilized dinosaur bones they dig up? Many creationist scientists claim they've discovered organic, unfossilized matter inside the fossilized bones, proving that the dinosaurs couldn't have died millions of years ago, but rather thousands because organic matter couldn't have survived that long. However, in reality, after more dinosaur bones were being discovered by both creationists and regular scientists containing organic material that should not have been able to survive millions of years in theory, many studies were conducted, and the general scientific consensus was that these organic, unfossilized materials were not actually ancient materials from the dinosaur itself, but rather a contamination of more recent materials from living microorganisms that originated from the surrounding subsurface environments and entered into the pores of the dinosaur bones. But what really is the goal of all these theories? Is digging up dinosaur bones and claiming that they're only a few thousand years old really going to change anyone's mind about anything in either direction? Well, possibly the most insidious thing about all of this is that a majority of this work is not intended for adults. It's intended for kids. Kids who grow up loving dinosaurs and, much like the religious thirst trap of the Cabazon dinosaurs, are attracted by the allure of any discussion of dinosaurs only to be sideswiped by the hidden creationist agenda. And where will kids learn about these theories and claims? In homeschool, of course. Homeschooling began with a relatively well-meaning intention. In the 1970s, John Holt, an educational theorist, argued that the rote memorization and assignment-based curriculums of public schools were designed to do nothing more than crank out the most obedient, regimented future corporate employees. He advocated for a method called, quote-unquote, unschooling, and communicated his theories and practices through a newsletter called Growing Without Schooling that was mailed to thousands of parents across the country. Another of Holt's contemporaries, Raymond Moore, 
went further to argue that children should be kept at home and schooled by their parents until age 8 or 9 before entering into any kind of public school system so that they didn't spend their most formative years being trained to work as an identical cog in a machine that stripped them of their individual identity. He released the book Homegrown Kids in 1981, which was a hit amongst parents interested in alternative living. So far, so good. That's not a that's not a bad pursuit. I think there is something to that idea that the way that public schools are formatted to have these large classroom sizes and systemized processes naturally leads to this sort of regimented fall in line type indoctrination seems like kind of a strong word, but you know, creating stifling individualism in a way that, you know, isn't probably isn't that great. However, in the 1980s, the tone of the homeschooling movement shifted. The radical individualists started to be overtaken by a new group of people who had become enamored of the idea of homeschooling for a different reason. Fundamentalist evangelicals who had wrapped up the idea of homeschooling their kids into a larger culture war about condemning public schools as cesspools of satanic indoctrination and filth. Holt's brand of homeschooling was cooperative with the public school system. Parents had to collaborate with their local school boards in order to make sure their home curriculums were compliant. In many cases, the parents needed to be licensed as a teacher by the school board, or another licensed school board member would need to periodically administer benchmark tests to homeschooled children in order for the child to qualify to advance in grade or graduate. That's how it worked for me when I was a kid. Um, I was homeschooled, and uh, my mom's friend was a teacher. And she periodically, every every couple of months, she came over to the house and just like made me do tests. And that was how I legally qualified for being able to advance in grades. The evangelical homeschool movement that began in the 80s was openly antagonistic towards public schooling and conventional teachers. This new brand of evangelical homeschooling as rebuke of the secularity of public school was initially endorsed and given popularity by James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family, a religious organization largely dedicated to preserving traditional Christian family values that, yes, of course, is mostly a thinly veiled attack on gay people who wanted to get married or adopt children. Are you familiar with Focus on the Family? Bro, bro, you know what the national language in Arizona is? Focus on on the family focus on the family baby focus on the family yeah i never heard of focus on the family until recently i wasn't brought up really with any kind of strict religious beliefs or anything like that but my wife she is super familiar she's the one that told me about it i think i had read about it or something like that and she was like oh yeah when i was a kid they made us watch all kinds of these movies that were produced by focus on the family she showed me some clips from the movies and they were just these really weird cheesy 80s and 90s made for video movies that had these overt religious themes to them and stuff yeah i mean in, the stuff that i remember from focus on the family was like there was a tv or a a radio show that we would listen to that would air at night that was kind of like a radio play about like these kids. It was kind of like a mixture of like Chronicles of Narnia and like really lame Bible lessons. So it was like a fantasy world. And it's funny too, because all of those fa- those fantasy guys like Lewis Carroll and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, like all those guys were like really Christian. So there's all this Christian iconography in those books anyway. But as time went on, they were viewed as too secular. And so there was like focus on the family, like adventure radio serials. So instead of Gandalf the Grey dying and then coming back as Gandalf the White, which is this like thinly veiled Jesus resurrection metaphor, that's too secular. So in this focus on the family thing, it's like, here's Jesus the God, and he's going to be resurrected 
because he's Jesus the God. Pretty much. Yeah, it was like, you know, I, I don't even remember what it was, but it was like a Wheel of Time style, like they're on an adventure, they got a quest, they're doing stuff, there's like a bunch of little kids, and, you know, there's an adult who's like the really good, like, looking out for you, and then one of the kids is like, oh, maybe I'll, like, go over there and do that thing that's kind of like, you know, graffiti or like listen to rock music or whatever. And the adult is like, no, that's how the devil gets you. I mean, I can remember one where there's like, you know, in the Bible, there's like this metaphorical, you know, the armor of God, the sword of truth, the shield of the word or whatever that those, you know, there's like a a thing in there about that. Right. And I, I can remember listening to because as a kid, for some reason I had, well, not for some reason, it's, I know why I had it, <laughs> uh, but I had a armor of God playset. So it was a little knight helmet and a chest plate that said the word of God and a little sword that said the sword of truth and a shield that I, I don't remember, what, but it said something like that on the shield and then like leg gauntlets. Like it was like a Roman centurion cosplay, but like to be a soldier for the Lord. And I remember listening to a Focus on the Family episode where one of the kids in the Focus on the Family story has to put on the armor of God in order to defeat the, defeat the villain of that episode that week. And I remember being like fucking jazzed because I was like, yeah, he's using the fucking sword of truth. I've got the sword of truth. I bet that outfit still fits you. <laughs> yeah, I'm wearing it right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are. And as a matter of fact, I'm just realizing that that's just your regular outfit. That's my regular attire. Yeah. That's what you're usually wearing. By the mid 80s, Holt and Moore had completely lost their controlling stake in the homeschool movement as it became increasingly more evangelical. There were still secular homeschool organizations, but they were starting to be pushed by the wayside. Many homeschool organizations required that any members make an oath to Jesus in their membership initiation and openly rejected secular homeschool parents. And with this shift towards religious homeschooling as the dominant form came a complete rift between public and homeschool. The homeschool parents no longer wanted to be beholden to the rules and regulations of school boards. They didn't want to have to be licensed by their standards or allow their secular teachers to come in and test their children. They began fighting back against the legal requirements across the country in many states. And yeah, I can I can attest that uh, it's funny because I was not homeschooled for religious reasons. I was homeschooled, according to my mom, because she said I was just I was bored in school and it just seemed like a lot of it was a waste of time. And she thought that it would just be better to homeschool me because, you know, with homeschool, it's like kind of like working from home. You either go to school and you're there for eight hours or you can get the same amount of work done in like two hours. But that being said, the evangelical aspect of homeschooling is so prevalent and so the main aspect of that community or movement or whatever that most of the materials you can get for homeschooling are all from religious companies. So I was homeschooled and it was not for religious reasons, but all of my materials had a weird religious aspect to them where you'd be doing math homework and it's like X over two times three divided by four is, you know, do this math equation and it will equal the number that is the number of loaves of bread that Jesus created to feed the hungry in Jerusalem. It's just weird stuff like that where they're just shoehorning it into random things. I'm sure my history or social studies work was wildly wrong, but all history and social study textbooks in regular schools are already kind of whitewashed and wrong. So I don't even know if it was that different. Nothing I ever learned was anything that taught young earth creationism or whatever. But it's kind of terrifying because it's like, luckily for me, I'm kind of an autodidact. So I didn't really like 
I don't I don't think I really learned much from school. I think most of the things I learned were just kind of on my own. But imagine all the kids who aren't like that, who just grow up learning completely wrong things because of this weird fucked up system where people have decided that secular learning is evil and they need to teach children these not true things. And then Michael Ferris, a homeschool parent and attorney, formed the Homeschool Legal Defense Association in 1983 to help fund these lawsuits. His organization began going over the head of the local school boards and fighting to have states' laws changed to sever the homeschool movement's dependency on the public school system. And slowly but surely, they won. By the mid-90s, homeschoolers had won their independence to teach their kids whatever they wanted with no public oversight. And Ferris and the HSLDA became the de facto leader and face of the evangelical homeschool movement. And with that changing of power, the purpose of the homeschool movement was twisted to become the exact opposite of what it started out as. Holt wanted to create a way for parents to prevent their kids from being trained to be mindless tools of a larger corporate machine. Ferris's goal was to train a generation of children in a fundamentalist evangelical vacuum, completely free from the secular world, and then send them into government, education, and entertainment to transform the U.S. into a nation based on Christian values. And so, throughout the 90s, a cottage industry of companies producing materials and curriculums for evangelical homeschool families exploded in the U.S. And some of the perspectives on history, biology, and geology in these curriculums were a little inaccurate. One of these companies was called Vision Forum, and they were about to take trying to use dinosaur bones to prove the young earth theory to new heights or depths. The Stan Lee of Dinosaur Grifters Vision Forum was an evangelical Christian organization founded in 1998 in San Antonio, Texas by Doug Phillips, a lawyer and evangelical fundamentalist who had worked for the aforementioned Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Phillips was the son of Howard Phillips, a former presidential candidate and evangelical activist who co-founded Moral Majority, a religious-based political organization dedicated to injecting Christian values into the Republican Party, along with the Reverend Jerry Falwell. Doug Phillips founded Vision Forum to advocate for biblical patriarchy and creationism through ministry, educational material, and entertainment. The organization was comprised of two companies, Vision Forum Ministries, a nonprofit church organization, and Vision Forum Inc., a company that produced homeschool materials and other products. Among many other things, the primary belief of Philip's specific brand of evangelical Christianity was that men should be viewed as the patriarchal leader of the family. Women, both wives and daughters, should be subservient to them. A woman is not allowed to work, and a daughter cannot marry someone without permission from her father, and that the public school system has no business deciding what kind of education children should get. He was a big proponent of something called the stay-at-home daughter movement, which urged young women to forego attending college or getting a job in order to live at home with their parents until their 20s and basically be a servant to their father until they were ready to go get married, effectively training them to be perfect housewives, and regularly hosted weird father-daughter bonding events where men would get on stage in front of a huge crowd of people and have their small daughters shave their faces, shine their shoes, dress them, and learn how to protect their sexual purity. And the whole thing was supposed to be cute. Yikes. Yeah, I mean, there's just... 
we're getting we're we're in we're in the third phase of this episode. We're doing it. We're shifting. We t- first we talked about like the history of creationism, and then we talked about like this homeschooling thing. Now we're into the story, and we're also shifting gears to like there's going to be a lot of weird psychological cognitive dissonance going on with like fathers that are obsessed with like daughters and young women and protecting their piety and like purity but also it's clearly some kind of like actual sexual fixation that they have on young women we're, we're just we're getting into some weird territory here phillips also founded the san antonio independent christian film festival through vision forum with the intention of creating a large forum for evangelical based films that could exist outside of the hollywood system over the years the film festival was home to movies such as return of the daughters here's the trailer for a documentary called return of the daughters that was screened at this film festival. It's been described as the most encouraging film of the year. Travel with Anna Sophia and Elizabeth Botkin into the homes of seven extraordinary young women who have dared to defy the feminist culture in pursuit of God's plan for daughters. Their decisions have changed their families forever. It's what we've been raised to believe, that somehow a woman who has not gone out to make her way by the time she's 20, 21, 22 years old, she hasn't gotten that degree, she hasn't gotten that job, that, that somehow we have failed. But according to whom? According to whom have we failed? And who am I trying to please? And am I willing to sacrifice my daughter on the altar of pleasing men? I most assuredly am not. I'm a follower of Christ. I live in this world, but I'm not of this world. My responsibility is to please him and him alone. How can young women best invest their single years? Go to returnofthedaughters.com. I, I realize that my lifestyle is countercultural, and I don't care because God's word is my standard, and that's what's that's what drives me. Return of the Daughters is the uh, Christian rock of dads who want to fuck their daughters. Yep, that 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 checks out. It doesn't make any sense, but it also checks out. The documentary featured Phillips and was all about the stay-at-home daughter movement. It also featured a young girl named Lourdes Torres speaking about her experiences with being a stay-at-home daughter. Torres would go on to become the live-in babysitter for the Phillips family, but more on that later. And they even screened the Kirk Cameron anti-divorce Christian fireman movie, Fireproof. Okay, let's go! Memo Captain Hope from the Albany Fire Department. We're going to get you out of here. Let's go, let's go! One, two, three! Newspaper called me twice wanting an interview. Seems I'm a hero with everybody in the world except my wife. Man, I've seen you run into a burning building to save people you don't even know. But you're going to let your own marriage just burn to the ground. Catherine and I were in love when we got married. But today, we're two very different people. We fight more than we do anything else. A real man's got to be a hero to his wife before he can be to anybody else. But he ain't a real man. She's probably whining to her friends. I can see them all right now having some sort of group hug. It's going to be all right. You'll get through this. All you need to make marriage work is a little bit of romance. That comes from right here. Man, that's easy to say when you ain't never been married. We're done, Dad. I am not going to keep doing this. I want you to hold off on the divorce for 40 days. I'm going to send you something in the mail. Take one day at a time, then see what happens. Every day has me adding a new concept to the way I treat her. My advice is go all out. In the last few days, 
he has fixed me coffee, bought me these pitiful little flowers, and just now called just to see if I'm doing okay. Up to this point, my heart's not been in it. This whole love dare thing, it's not working. You can't love her because you can't give her what you know I have. You gotta beg God to teach you how to be a good husband. And don't just follow your heart, you gotta lead your heart. Bro, that movie was directed by Alex Kendrick, and uh, I feel like we need to do a marathon of the works of... Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I I take it you haven't seen Fireproof. I remember when it came out, but no, I never actually watched it. Not only have I seen Fireproof, but I watched the DVD commentary with the the director and writers. Is that because it's so bad, it's compelling, and you wanted to learn why that is, or why did you watch it? Uh, yeah, we, we, we just, we watched it, uh, we rented it and watched it and it's, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty entertaining. You will be laughing the whole time. And then the, the DVD commentary is also just very entertaining. We, the, I, I, remember, I don't remember much about it other than just laughing a lot. Uh, but I do remember cause it just was so burned in my memory that the very beginning of the movie, the first thing that they say in the DVD commentary, it's these two guys, they want to, they both direct and write the movies and they, they have a production company. They made a bunch of these religious movies. And the first thing that they say was, uh, whenever we had the idea for this movie, it came from my realization that women require respect. Men require love. That's the first thing that they say in the DVD commentary. I don't even want to. I don't. I can't even. I don't want to. I, I don't. I, yeah. No, I, I would highly recommend watching Fireproof. It's pretty entertaining. That trailer doesn't even do it justice. Honestly, there's there's just so many ridiculous things in it. Um, but but ultimately, it's just got this strong religious based anti-divorce. You shouldn't get divorced for any reason. Message. Yeah, have you ever been to Donut Prince in Burbank? It's just it's a donut shop, and it's like pretty old. It's been around since like the, I think the '60s, and um, it's been in movies. I'm pretty sure that I think that the uh, the donut shop that they go to in Boogie Nights, whenever Don Cheadle goes into the donut shop, and then the the shootout happens, and he takes away, he runs away with the money. That's filmed in Donut Prince. I could be wrong about that, but there's definitely movies scenes that have been in Donut Prince, but. Uh, the couple that owns it, they're really, I guess, against divorce. And on Donut Prince, in big letters on the front of it, the slogan of the store is don't get a divorce, get a donut. I mean, that's a great that's a great slogan. Yeah. I mean, it's it stopped me many times. <laughs> Spandrew, I'm picturing your marriage as being very similar to Andrew's marriage, but just with an eye patch. Yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah. My whole family has eye patches, genetic. But the one movie that was never screened at Phillips Film Festival, oddly enough, was the first and only feature film he ever produced through Vision Forum, *Raising the Allosaur*. So, what was the movie? Well, in order to fully understand, we first need to delve into what Phillips presented the movie as at the time, and then work backward from there. A couple of years after starting Vision Forum and founding the San Antonio Independent Christian Film Festival. Phillips wanted to create something that fired off in all the quadrants of his life's mission. Something that would simultaneously further the idea of young earth creationism to small kids in their most impressionable formative stage, endorse and champion the superiority of homeschooling over traditional public schooling, make a big feature film that would make waves in the indie Christian film world and put his film festival on the map, become famous as one of the leading figures in the creationist scene, 
and also make a ton of money for himself. And so, in May of 2002, Phillips gathered a crew of over 30 homeschool kids and their parents and set out to search for dinosaur bones, and he brought along a documentary film crew to capture the expedition. It was mostly fathers and their sons, but one of the parents in the group was none other than Mark Meadows, the chief of staff for the Trump administration, and his daughter Haley. The crew drove to a town aptly named Dinosaur, Colorado. Why there? Well, the town was named Dinosaur for a reason. The state of Colorado is a hotbed for dinosaur bones, and Dinosaur, Colorado was absolutely teeming with them. And in Dinosaur, Colorado, a creationist rancher named Dana Forbes had purchased a 100-acre plot of land known to be the site of many dinosaur bone discoveries explicitly with the intent of opening it only to creationist scientists to search for dinosaur bones. No secular scientists were allowed to dig on the land. His goal was to use the land as a resource to find as many dinosaur bones as possible and use them towards the mission of proving young Earth theory. Well, Phillips wanted to prove that not only was the Earth only 6,000 years old with dinosaur bones, but also that homeschooling was so superior of an education that a ragtag group of homeschool kids could make that discovery by themselves. When the Vision Forum crew got to Forbes land, there was already another team there doing digging. Creation Expeditions, an organization of creationist scientists led by Peter DeRosa. Prior to their arrival, Creation Expeditions had uncovered a few bones, but it wasn't until the kids arrived and did a majority of the heavy lifting that they confirmed what all the bones were. They uncovered a 70% intact Allosaurus skeleton in the dirt. One of the homeschool fathers, Dr. Bruce Bellamy, was the one to discover the skull of the creature, finally confirming it was an Allosaurus. And as a bonus, nine-year-old Haley Meadows personally discovered the claw of a 100-foot sauropod. During a three-day dig, the Vision Form Expedition dug up the skeleton and successfully raised it out of the ground. Creation Expedition assisted in some of the dirt removal, but ultimately the majority of the work was done by Vision Form. The discovery was especially amazing because there had never been an Allosaurus discovered that was more than 25% intact prior to this, and it had been done by a bunch of homeschool kids. Phillips was quoted at the time as saying, Most people do not realize that there is a tremendous paucity of dinosaur bones available to scientists, said Phillips. 95% of all of the fossils in the world are marine invertebrates. 95 of the remaining 5% are plants. The vast majority of the rest of the fossil record are fish and insects. Only a fraction of a percent of the remaining fossil record includes land vertebrates and those finds usually consist of less than one bone. To find a complete allosaur is simply historic. Here was a Vision Forum press release on the discovery at the time. Colorado, May 20th, a dinosaur fossil expedition for home educators sponsored by Vision Forums and Creation Expeditions has excavated a rare, large, intact allosaurus measuring more than 20 feet in length, 10 feet in height, with a complete skull more than a yard long. Allosaurs are believed to be a close relative of the Tyrannosaurus rex and differ from the T-Rex primarily in size and cranial capacity. Under the leadership of Vision Forum President Doug Phillips, an adjunct professor of apologetics with the Institute of Creation Research, and Peter DeRosa, a veteran archaeologist and paleontologist with Creation Expeditions, the team of 30 home educators spent a week hunting for and excavating fossils in a privately owned location in the Skull Creek Basin of northwest Colorado. 
Vision Forum News release, May 20th, 2002. And the best thing is that the entire thing was caught on film. The Allosaurus was sent to a museum for inspection by creationist paleontologists who, surprise, surprise, discovered organic microorganisms in the bones of the dinosaur, proving that the animal had died thousands of years ago rather than millions. And so, on November 15th, 2002, Vision Forum released the feature-length documentary Raising the Allosaur, the true story of a rare dinosaur and the homeschoolers who found it. It was directed by twin brothers Graham and Joel Fisher of Beowulf Studios. This is the trailer for Raising the Allosaur. Beowulf Studios in the Avatar font. When that beat comes in, though, raising the Allosaur, yeah, baby. Yeah, I'm pumped. I'm fucking, I'm. Look at all these tech vests. And the world is 6,000 years four. old. In the ancient valleys of North America, the search is on for clues to a mystery. A mystery which has perplexed scientists and occupied the daydreams of young boys for generations. It began with a vision, a vision conceived in the battle-ridden halls of academia, but finally birthed in the home schools of America. A vision to unearth a treasure trove of ancient reminders, forever transformed by the greatest catastrophe in Earth history. A treasure trove lost to the world of men since the day it was buried in a never-to-be-repeated global deluge. One mission one message. The quest for the Allosaur. And the answer to the question, what really happened to the dinosaurs? Oh, yeah. Look at all these, like, middle-aged dudes in hiking gear. Fuck yeah, they're, like, hitting rocks. They're pushing rocks. They're looking at rocks. They're standing on rocks. They are making this movie on a high DV8 tape. Fuck yeah, baby. Run down that hill. I was walking fast on rocks. I was, I was walking super fast on a rock, and it was at a high frame rate, so that, it was fucking epic. I, be, I, I believe it now. 6,000 years. Bro, these motherfuckers, these twin brothers, whoever the fuck they are, what are their names again? The Fisher Brothers. The Fisher Brothers? Bro, more like the Fishers of Men, because I'm fully fucking converted Bro, it's a good thing I'm sitting down and you can't see my waist because below the waist, I am fully converted. The movie was an in-depth chronicling of the entire process of Vision Forum discovering and digging up the Allosaurus, as well as a look into the examination process that revealed the organic materials contained within its bones that proved it couldn't have been more than a few thousand years old. But the whole movie is focused through the lens of Haley Meadows, who the filmmakers chose to center as the main character of the movie. Here's a scene from the movie where the team is desperate to find the skull of the creature to confirm what type of dinosaur it is, but is slowly losing hope, only to come together, pray over the site, and finally hit pay dirt. Here we uh, plastered up some right here, but this is the first one I found today, so I'm going to follow it back and see if we can't find any more. With the discovery of this vertebrae, a cautious Mark DeRosa travels to site number one, where he quietly tells his brother that they may be on to something. They may be on their way to finding the skull. Dr. Bruce Bellamy and his son are two of the men who have been laboring unsuccessfully at Site 2 all day. 
This guy's full-on dressed like Alan Grant. I mean, there's a reason for that, and the reason is they're all not real paleontologists, and they're just, like, cosplaying as this bullshit. This happens in the movie. Wow, they really kept his whole prayer in there. We couldn't just see a clip of this. We had to, we had to see the whole thing. I'm trying to pad out that runtime, get it to 60 minutes. Yeah, yeah it is 75, dude. They got to get it to 75 minutes. Within moments of breaking dirt, a remarkable discovery is made. Dr. Bellamy has struck the neck vertebrae leading right up to the skull. They found their allosaur. Further excavation will expose teeth and skull and 70% of this magnificent animal. But they find something else, something they didn't expect to find. In and around the skull, are deposits of partially fossilized and unfossilized organic material. The full articulation of the bones indicates the ground has not moved since deposition, and the organic material was laid down at the time of the Allosaurus burial. But the existence of the material clearly points to a recent deposition, since it would not remain organic over vast periods of time. The search for the Allosaur is over, but God has answered their prayers and given them yet another devastating evidence. Jesus. They fucking did it. They did it. See, this is, this is the thing, Dave. This is the thing. You... you you missed this. Like, how did you miss this? This this movie came out in two thousand three. They proved that God existed and that the and that fucking Noah's Ark happened. How did you miss this shit? The documentary did very well for Vision Forum. Prior to the release of the film, Vision Forum had actually gotten itself in over a million dollars in debt, and things were not looking good for the company. However, the release of the videotape and DVD through the Vision Forum sales catalog, as well as the subsequent tie-in merchandise line of rip-off Indiana Jones-style fedora hats, rock hammers, and dinosaur toys, made the company enough to completely pay off their debts and then some. Phillips legitimately got rich off of this one movie release. And not only that, but the movie made big waves in Christian media and was shown across the country as part of thousands of homeschool curriculums and even at private Christian schools and colleges. Phillips was starting to gain the fame and influence in the worlds of young earth creationism and homeschooling that he wanted. But then something odd happened. The following year, despite the massive success of the movie in direct catalog sales, and despite the fact that the entire purpose of the movie early on was to eventually screen at Phillips Film Festival, Raising the Allosaur did not make an appearance at the November 11th to 13th, 2004 San Antonio Independent Christian Film Festival. It was never mentioned once at the festival by Phillips or anyone. And around the same time, it was also abruptly pulled from the Vision Forum catalog. In fact, to this day, you cannot buy or watch Raising the Allosaur anywhere other than finding it on Amazon or eBay used. There are no stores that carry the DVD, no sites that stream it, and not even any torrents of it. Trust me, I tried. I even tried to buy a copy of the DVD from a Goodwill in Kentucky through Amazon, but shortly after paying for it, my order was canceled because the, quote, item was not in stock. The directors of the movie, The Fisher Twins, did, however, win an award that year for a different short film that they had made called The Art of Play. 
And though it's never been confirmed, many of the people involved in this whole situation have speculated that Phillips arranged for them to win the prize and accompanying prize money as a payoff for their silence about what we will soon learn. So what happened? Why did Raising the Allosaur, the most successful product ever produced by Vision Forum and the literal proof of God, disappear out of nowhere? Well, because the entire thing was a huge fucking lie. Like, beyond your wildest imagination of how much of a lie it could have been. Like, not just a lie about the part where they claim the bones proved the Earth is 6,000 years old, but to the scale that even within the creationist science and evangelical community, it was a huge fucking lie. Doug Phillips was basically the Stan Lee of young Earth creationist homeschool dinosaur grifters. That is a hell of a sentence. And so true. And you will see that he really is just that that's that's not some loose connection. Like you were you're gonna understand that that connection soon. The reason why Phillips pulled the movie from the Vision Forum catalog and didn't mention a single word about it at the festival was because a few days before the festival dates, a scathing expose of the movie written by evangelical journalist Terry Bay and homeschool mother Mary Gavin was released. In the article, Bay and Gavin exposed the truth behind the film and its claims. So here's the truth. Shortly after purchasing the 100 acres of land in Dinosaur, Colorado, for the purpose of helping creation scientists find dinosaurs in October of 2000, Dana Forbes made a pretty big discovery of what was likely a highly intact Allosaurus skeleton buried in the dirt. Upon recommendation from some of the other creationist scientists, Forbes brought out Joe Taylor, a legitimate creationist paleontologist, as legitimate as that can be, and his team from the Mount Blanco Fossil Museum, who began excavation. Taylor was named the chief excavator of the project, which lasted years, because it's physically impossible to excavate and raise a dinosaur skeleton in three days or even a few weeks. Between the extremely sensitive nature of the work and the fact that it requires a lot of funding for the labor hours and equipment rentals, excavating a dinosaur by a team of highly experienced paleontologists takes a minimum of several months and likely several years. It was Joe Taylor in these early stages in the year 2000 that studied a few of the dug-up bones and determined that it was an Allosaurus. So fast forward to the year 2002. The excavation of the Allosaurus skeleton by Taylor and his team is nearing completion. Doug Phillips gets wind of it and hatches a scheme. He gets together with his friend Pete DeRosa from Creation Expeditions, who is not a professional paleontologist, but just a cosplay creationist scientist that goes around with his team assisting actual paleontology teams on digs, their glorified dirt movers. They plan to get their respective crews together and drive up to Dinosaur Colorado to essentially be there when the Allosaurus, who once again has been being excavated for the last two years by Mount Blanco Fossil Museum, is finally raised. They'll act like they had pivotal roles in the raising and gain a bunch of publicity for Vision Forum and homeschooling. What does Pete DeRosa get out of it? He made a deal with Doug Phillips to sell dinosaur dig tour packages from Creative Expeditions to the large Vision Forum customer mailing list and split the profits down the middle. So Creative Expeditions and the Vision Forum homeschool kids get to the site and assist Mount Blanco in moving dirt for the end of the dig. Creative Expeditions is there for a couple weeks and is actually present for the raising of the Allosaurus, though only to offer assistance. The Vision Forum kids and Phillips were only there for three days, and they left before the dinosaur was even raised. So why is Joe Tyler and the Mount Blanco team not in the movie? How do they shoot around them and make it seem like Vision Forum and Creative Expeditions were the only ones doing the dig? Because they didn't actually have a film crew or record anything from the actual dig. After the dinosaur was raised, which ultimately belonged to the property owner Dana Forbes, and Joe Taylor and his team had left, Doug Phillips, the Vision Forum kids, Pete DeRosa, and the Creative Expedition team all returned to the site 
and shot an entirely staged, completely scripted faux documentary where they convinced Dana Forbes to let them rebury the dinosaur and pretend to dig it up for the camera. They reburied an actual dinosaur and then shot a fake scripted documentary about digging it up. I mean, you think I'm going to say no? This fucking rules. Are you kidding? <laughs> this is great. I love this. I mean, have fun while it lasts. But yes, you're right. It's it is it's it is great. It I and I I tried to buy the movie. That wasn't a joke. I was going to I was going to it did. There's no way to get it. But I was like, OK, I can get the DVD and then I can rip it and then we can watch it because I, I was I want to watch this movie. I want to see this whole fucking thing. But I just I, I couldn't get it. I even I, I tried to order it and it just they it didn't work. But just the idea that they got all these kids together and they just filmed this fake documentary and everybody involved was just like, yeah, this is a good idea. So into it. I'm so into it. (laughs) The whole documentary was crafted with fictional story points to show that the homeschool families had discovered that the bones belonged to an Allosaurus, had miraculously raised the whole skeleton in three days, and centered the entire narrative around Haley Meadows, presumably because Mark Meadows was a wealthy, well-connected person and offered Phillips some incentive to make his daughter the star. And more importantly, they completely erased Joe Taylor and Mount Blanco's entire involvement in the dig and gave them no credit even though they uh, deserved 100% of the credit. The movie never even shows the actual raising of the Allosaurus, despite being titled Raising the Allosaur, because the actual raising of the dinosaur bones would be too risky and dangerous for the film crew to even simulate for the camera, and so they didn't get any footage of that. Instead, there are just a few still pictures at the end claiming to be of the raising, despite being photos from a completely different dig. Four months before the movie's release, word was already starting to spread about what Vision Forum had accomplished, and Joe Taylor got wind of it. He reached out to Doug Phillips and attempted to politely request that he make alterations to the movie to be more factually accurate, which honestly shows a lot more restraint than most people. I'd be like, you fucking lying charlatan, you stole my shit. Yeah, no shit. Like, I, 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 can't, even, I can't even imagine. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I didn't put them in there because it's just like kind of too tedious. I, I was like, I, I don't think we need to read through these. But the I read the actual emails and he really is. He's just like very nice. He's just like, I mean, I, I just feel like maybe you should like add some more stuff into the movie about maybe how, you know, we were there. Like, he, I would be like, the fuck is what the hell is this bullshit? Doug Phillips ignored him. In fact, he had his personal assistant respond with this opaque and passive aggressive cop out. Dear Mr. Taylor, Doug is rushing around from state to state and asked me to respond to your letter. First, he wanted me to thank you for your kindness in taking the time to write with the below corrections and comments. He also wanted to acknowledge our gratitude for the expertise and years of experience that the Lord has given you in the field of paleontology. Doug wanted me to respectfully disagree with points one through four in your note. Concerning the remaining points, Doug wanted me to assure you that it is never his desire to rob another brother of the glory due him, but that it has always been our understanding, based on his relationship with Pete and Creation Expeditions, that this dig, from the beginning to the end, has been a Creation Expeditions dig for which you were an important part of the support team. Consequently, the information was not meant to exclude Mount Blanco but to emphasize Creation Expedition team which oversaw the project and was yoked with Vision Forum during the week that the Allosaurus skull was discovered. 
The articles were cleared with Creation Expedition and represent our best attempt to promote an accurate overview of the situation and to draw attention to the importance of this find, which culminated with the dig that occurred during the week that Vision Forum and Creation Expeditions sponsored our joint dig. He mentioned that because the formal working relationship between Creation Expedition and Vision Forum, that any concerns should be discussed with Pete, from whom we take our cue. Taylor sent a few follow-up emails, but was repeatedly rebuffed by Phillips' personal assistant. Phillips never personally responded to Taylor. After being ignored by Phillips, Joe Taylor began trying to produce his own counter-documentary called The Truth About Raising the Allosaur, that he'd release at the same time as Raising the Allosaur, in order to at least get the real story out there. But he was intimidated into canceling the documentary after intense legal threats from Vision Forum. Which I, I love this little detail. Just the idea of these two just weird crackpot creationist archaeologist people just being like, no, I'm going to make my own documentary that's about how your documentary is a big lie. And my documentary is going to be the truth. I'm going to tell the truth about how I dug up this dinosaur that proves that the earth was 6,000 years old. I'm going to make my documentary and it's going to show everybody how fake your documentary is. Well, isn't the funny thing, too, is that dinosaurs seem to attract these types of people. Like, weren't weren't there like two rival paleontologists that were like kind of charlatans in like the 1800s who did a kind of a very similar thing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I think, you know. Even though dinosaurs were real, I think that they kind of like exist in a weird space along with like cryptids and like mythological creatures because they don't exist anymore. And their are their tangibility is kind of similar to what a mythological creature is, um, where it's like finding bones instead of footprints or whatever. Um, and so I think that like stuff like Bigfoot, they attract just a lot of hucksters and weird con artists and hoax artists to want to claim that they found some crazy discovery or whatever. Like, I think it's, it's just, they just naturally attract those type of people just like Bigfoot or Loch Ness monster or whatever. Yeah. It's like, there's like, there's big cat people and then there's big lizard people. And for some reason, those two animals just really attract a very specific type of person. Yep. Big lizards attract just like weird con artist crazy people. So cut to the next year after this movie had been released without addressing any of Joe Taylor's concerns and had done massively well. A lot of people involved in the dig were becoming increasingly annoyed and troubled by the situation. So finally, just before the 2004 San Antonio Independent Christian Film Festival, Terry Bay and Mary Gavin, people who were actually involved in the dig and knew the truth, released their article and completely blew up Philip's spot. And the interesting thing about this that I think about is this happened before the internet was this big thing. It wasn't this global connected network that incorporated social media in the way that it is now. The internet definitely existed and was a common thing that a lot of people used, but it just still wasn't a thing where you're like, oh yeah, if I say something, everybody in the world will know it in like three minutes. But even then... It's odd that he would do this and think that he would get away with it. It's odd that he would be like, yeah, all these people were there. There was dozens of people. They all were there. They all know what happened. And I'm just going to tell everybody that we dug this dinosaur up and somehow nobody's going to care or notice or be upset about it. It's Christian, uh, Christian creationism omerta. Yeah. Well, the thing I was going to say is that the interest, I think, I think what he did essentially 
is there's this weird level of pious gaslighting going on. It's like exclusively for these particular types of evangelicals and it's used constantly. It's like with the Jerry Falwell Jr. scandal thing that happened a year ago or whatever, whenever it was. Any of these types of scandals that happened. He was like, wasn't it? What was that one? He was just like standing next to a woman who had her pants unbuttoned and he was like holding a beer. Well, that. Yeah. I mean, the, the controversy is obviously ridiculous. The controversy that he was drinking alcohol and like being rowdy with a woman in his presence that was the initial controversy, which is nothing. That's just that's just, that's just a nothing burger with a side of fucking of of non-existent fries. Um, but it ended up the further story that ended up coming out was that he was like in a like a cuckold relationship with his wife who was like sleeping with guys, which is also not a problem, really. But in the in the religious community, it is. But with that or or things that are more legitimate, like people who commit crimes or abuse people or whatever, there's this thing where they like gaslight you with their piety or it's like where it's like, you know, I have done nothing wrong because God has ordained me to, uh, you know, with this mission of doing this thing that I'm doing, like I everything I'm doing, I'm meant to do. And for you to challenge that is to challenge God's will. And I think that's the way that he got he not only thought he would get away with it, but kind of would get away with it is like, I'm just going to tell everybody that we did this. And if anybody challenges me, I'm going to be like, no, you're lying because God is on my side and you are evil and trying to take down my the mission that God has given me. And it works. He pulled the movie from the catalog and never spoke about it publicly ever again. After increasing public scrutiny, Vision Forum released one single public statement. We want to assure our friends that we firmly stand behind the integrity of the film Raising the Allosaur. Also, contrary to the claims of our detractors, the voluntary decision to withdraw the film from circulation, for the present, had nothing to do with concerns on our part that the film was untruthful. But that was it. Raising the Allosaur just disappeared. Doug Phillips took all the money he made from it and crept off quietly into the night. The Allosaurus skeleton, later named Ebenezer, eventually ended up in that Petersburg, Kentucky Creation Museum, the same one with the dinosaur statues wearing saddles. The bones were donated to the museum by the Elizabeth Streb Perutka Foundation, a foundation that focuses primarily on, quote, putting an end to the catastrophe of abortion but whose leader, Michael Perutka, is a white supremacist who sits on the board of directors of an organization called League of the South, who believe, among many things, that American slavery was, quote, God-ordained. He was also a huge figure in the homeschool movement in the early 2000s until he was exposed for disowning his two daughters after they accused him of sexual abuse. You basically can't make this shit up. You dig deep enough, and you're going to find some horrifying shit. That's got to tell you something. If, if if you can't throw a rock in your community without hitting a racist child abuser, rapist, then you might have a problem. You might you might need to think about what that means. You know you're a Christian creationist when you throw a rock and you hit a child abuser. Maybe this means something. You know that you're a young earth Adventist when your daughters disown you. For sexual abuse. Yep. Sad, but framed in a humorous light when you say it with a Jeff Foxworthy-esque accent. Jeff Foxworthy? More like Jeff Fucksworthy. I thought you were going to say Coxworthy, so 
was, was I mean, either way was a good was a good direction. You kind of couldn't go wrong with that. In 2019, when Mark Meadows was still a congressman and hadn't been hired as Trump's chief of staff, it was discovered that at some point after the events of the Allosaurus dig, he had purchased the 100 acres of land in Dinosaur, Colorado from Dana Forbes, presumably to continue the efforts of helping creation scientists dig up dinosaur bones to prove young Earth theory, and that he had sold the land in 2016. The story got pressed because he had failed to report the roughly $200,000 sale on his congressional financial disclosures, which is illegal. He sold the land to Ken Ham, an Australian creationist activist, and his Young Earth creationist organization, Answer in Genesis. Ken Ham and Answer in Genesis are also the people who started the Creation Museum in Kentucky and now own the Allosaurus. The world of young Earth creationist is a small one, but, you know, only about 6,000 years old. So that was basically it. The dinosaur is in the Creation Museum. Ken Ham owns the plot of land in Colorado and still hosts creationist science digs on it. Raising the Allosaur is completely unavailable to view anywhere. And Doug Phillips never faced any repercussions. Well, at least not for that. Remember Lourdes Torres, the young girl who was featured prominently in the documentary about stay-at-home daughters? Her family was friends with the Phillips family, and eventually, she started working as a babysitter for Doug Phillips' children. Torres started spending more and more time with the Phillips family, even going with them on several family vacations, all under the auspices of babysitting the children. Eventually, she moved in with them and became their full-time live-in nanny. She remained with the family until 2012, when she abruptly cut off any ties with the Phillips family, and her family left the church they attended that Phillips served on the board of. A year later, Phillips publicly admitted to having a, quote, extramarital affair and resigned from Vision 4 Ministries. Two weeks later, the organization announced that it would be closing down permanently. Vision Forum Inc., the for-profit arm of Vision Forum, continued on for a little while longer, but also ended up shutting down. Now, just a quick warning that there is going to be some pretty graphic language and descriptions of sexual assault coming up. In 2014, Torres filed a lawsuit against Doug Phillips, alleging that he had sexually groomed her from a young age, using her babysitting job to gain private access to her and slowly, over the course of years, convince her that, as the patriarchal figure of their church community, he had the right to do as he pleased with her. He invited her on their family trips and ultimately had her move in with the family in order to continually have more and more access to her. Prior to her moving in with the family, Phillips had given her unwanted massages. During the years she lived with him, quote, against her wishes and over her objections, Douglas Phillips repeatedly groped, rubbed, and touched Miss Torres' crotch, breasts, and other areas of her body, rubbed his penis on her, masturbated on her, forced her to watch him masturbate on her, and ejaculated upon her, according to the lawsuit. Torres also claimed that Phillips had justified his actions to her by saying that his wife would be dead soon and that he intended to marry her. Jesus. It's it's fuck it's fucking dark. Like this this took a this this took a dark turn in the research. Uh cuz I was doing this about the crazy dinosaur story and a lot of the stuff I was reading was older. So it was like stuff written at the time, the 2005-ish range. And this happened in 2014. So for a long time in the research, this was not part of it. And then at some point I discovered this and I was like, oh my God, this just has a horribly dark ending to it. By 2012, Torres finally worked up the courage to tell her family about what Phillips was doing. They confronted the church they all attended together and told them. The church decided to do nothing about it and continued allowing Phillips to serve on their board. Torres and her family abruptly left the church. 
When Phillips found out, he went to Torres' house at midnight and tried to climb into her bedroom window before being chased off by her father. The next morning, he went back to the Torres house with his wife and tried to convince them to make Torres come back and keep working for him. They refused. After a few months, word had gotten around the community, and not only the church, but also all of the higher-up board members of Vision Forum knew about what Phillips had done, and yet nobody did anything. It wasn't until a year later that Phillips admitted to having a, quote, extramarital affair, or in other words, sexually groomed and assaulted a child, and stepped down from Vision Forum Ministries. In the wake of the lawsuit, emails were discovered showing Phillips' wife threatening Torres not to come forward with her claims. Right now, you may have a perception of peace, but what you don't know is that these bombs are about to explode in a matter that will change all our lives forever. It will affect your life, your marriage prospects, your parents, and thousands of other people. It is far worse than you imagine. The VFM board has encouraged me to let you know about these, and to work with you to give you an opportunity to stop impending destruction. After legal intimidation by Vision Forum, Torres eventually dropped her lawsuit and moved on with her life. She's now married and has left fundamentalism. As for Doug Phillips, he apparently got really into doing historical reenactments and uh, just went on with his life. Surprise, it was a stealth dark cuts. Jesus. That just echoes the thing I was saying before of just like, if you can throw a rock and hit a sexist rapist in your community like maybe the maybe there's some shit you need to reassess about like the lifestyle you've chose you've chosen yeah that was fascinating and so compelling and then just veers off into left field i mean that's, that was my experience writing about it i mean i know i know i kind of i i, I just i've i've wanted to talk about the the cabazon dinosaurs for a long time like i've i've Listening to the show as a fan, uh, I've always kind of had it in my back of my mind as like, if I ever wrote an episode of Deep Cuts, I kind of, I, I, this Cabazon dinosaur story is interesting, but there's not enough to it for it to be an episode because it really is just like a guy built these dinosaurs and then a religious family bought them and then just turned them into like a creationist museum. So there's like this desire to want to do something about that for the show, but then just like knowing that it's just not enough. So I kind of had the idea of building that thing on top of the story and kind of preambling it with some background about creationist, young earth creationism and all this stuff and the weird fixation on dinosaurs. Um, But other than that, other than that sort of preamble, this was supposed to be just kind of like a funny story about like this weird hoax documentary that some maniac made. Um, but you know, once I've, you know, can't, can't ignore this once I found out that this happened. Yeah. It, it's interesting though. Cause you're totally right in that. Like even that last swerve, the stuff at the end about him being this sexual monster, as we've previously discussed about Stan Lee, that totally fits. Cause there's all these weird, dark sexual shit from Stan Lee's end days. Yeah. Yeah, and it yeah, it's like it's it's a it's a dark turn or a huge swerve, but also like we didn't really watch any footage of Doug Phillips. But if you watch, because none of it was relevant, I I wish we could have I wish we could have had some video footage to watch of him, so we could have done like a Doug Phillips looks like. But like there was just no video clips that were relevant to any of the story. It was just it's just him like rambling at fucking church sermons or whatever. Um, but if you see Doug Phillips and you see him talking, you're just like, oh yeah, this guy is a, is a rapist. Like for sure. Like it, it's not surprising at all. He's 57 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Doug Phillips. Doug Phillips looks like the type of person that said, shh, be quiet, baby. It'll be over in a minute way too often. Yeah. I mean, even like kind of in his older years, like more recently, he even like kind of looks a little nicer. Like he, like some of the some, some of that some of that quality has been removed from him. But if you watch some of the some of the video footage of him like doing sermons and talking or whatever from the like early 2000s when he was younger, didn't have the beard. And he sort of used to dress like Gordon Gecko. Like he's like he's like he he. That's how he dressed. He was he would wear the he would wear like a blue button up shirt with like the the sleeves buttoned all the way out with like a tie and then like slacks. And he just he just looks like Gordon Gecko. And he just or like or like Jordan Belfort or something like that. And yeah, he's just like it, looking at him. You're just not surprised that that's what ended up happening in his life at all. Man, fuck this guy. It's so funny too to me though that they're like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna rig this whole scenario. We're gonna we're gonna put all these pieces together. We're gonna fake this documentary, lie to all these people, and then just hope for the best. Yeah, and it, and the best kind of did happen. Like <laughs> they made millions of dollars, and then like when they started getting like scrutiny, they just like, you know, like when you post something on it, when when somebody posts something on social media that's like controversial or people just do not have a good reaction to it they'll delete it but like that doesn't do anything like if you delete if somebody if like a celebrity deletes something from social media it just makes it worse like people screenshot it they start talking about it, they start reposting it it becomes a bigger deal you know the the Streisand effect um but he did this and then when people were like hey wait a minute this is a fucking lie he just like took it down and then like he was fine like he was just like nope that never existed where did these millions of dollars come from I'm going to go become a civil war reenactor. I love it. I, I have no, I have nothing else to say. I love it. I love the hubris behind it. I love the idiocy laced throughout all of it. I love the fanaticism that fuels it. It's complete and utter rejection of re- the real world and ideas like facts. Um, it's, it's so fascinating and terrifying that we just live in a world now where people make their own realities. Yeah. And this was kind of like one of the early pioneering of that. Like 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 what I was kind of saying of the thing I was really trying to like get across in the beginning is like mainstream like I mean obviously there's tons of horrible things about like about Christianity just like the 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 oppre- the, the religious oppression and the death and wars and homophobia and sex like i'm not i'm not saying like oh christian religion used to be way better back then but in this one specific in this one specific context religion didn't used to be this weird like science denialism like craft your own reality thing it was it 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 wanted to coexist with science entirely and it was like dependent on it it was like well for certain periods i mean come on like that the period we covered was like the age of enlightenment, like whenever, whenever, whenever getting out of the dark ages, basically, and out of the dark ages and into the age of enlightenment, religion like sought the approval of science. Like they, they needed the validation of science to be like, see guys, that was the Christian reboot era. They were trying to reset continuity to appeal to a new set of readers. Yeah. But, but yeah, these, these, these guys in basically in like the, in the fifties and sixties, they started to realize like, oh, we don't need to like, we don't need for anything to be true. We can just say stuff. And like most people don't care about what scientists say anyway. And they'll listen to us because what we can like, what we say is like makes more sense to them. And and I'm sure there's other things that happened along that way. 
But looking at this is like this was a pretty this was a pretty like pivotal moment in the like transition into a post-truth era. Into a post-creationist. I don't know. I was trying to come up with a pun, but it, it didn't didn't really work. That didn't work out quite as well as um quite as well as um Rudy Giuliani and his uh, one man's oil is another head oil is another man's lube or whatever you said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. It's it's. It's not. Um, yeah. How should we wrap this guy up, Spandrew? Uh, just fucking raise him out of the ground and examine his bones and determine that the Deep Cuts universe is only 6,000 years old. Well, on that note, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com or at xdavebakerx on a bunch of the socials. Please go buy my comics. Everyone is Tulip, Night Hunters, Star Trek, and Fuck Off Squad. Spandrew, where can people find you? You can't find me on social media. I don't use social media, but if you want to pay tribute to the late, great Andrew Price, you can go to his website, dapricewrites.com. You can get his book, the final book by Andrew Price, Deadbolt, A Private Eye. Uh, You can also go to deepcutspod.com and click on the shop or go to bit.ly.com slash deepcutsmerch. To get some deep cuts merchandise, t-shirts, fanny packs, uh, baby onesies. Actually, a funny story. Uh, ever since deep cuts got merch, Andrew's been saying fanny packs. Uh, but in actuality, uh, the 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 merchandise website that we use uh, has actually been out of stock on fanny packs for like a year, and they just got fanny packs back in stock for the first time. So in the first time in the history of the show, it's actually true that you can get a Deep Cuts fanny pack. Um, And you can also follow us on all social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Deep Cuts Podcast. You can join our Facebook group where we talk about the show and other cool things and have a community and make memes and stuff like that. Uh, The Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. You can also join our Discord where we do similar things, um, but talk about even more granular stuff. Uh, Go to bit.ly.com slash Deep Cuts Discord. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. Follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod, and um, uh, maybe someday I'll make a, a, a GeoCities Pokemon fan site that you can visit. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com.